Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello and good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Maybe you're listening even in the middle of the night. It's good to have you with us today to this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. And I'm your host, Bart Sheridan. Tim Cockrell here is back at the table for today's discussion. And Tim shared with our church a message from Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, verse 13 this past Sunday. And that passage will be the topic of discussion here in the coming minutes. And Tim, we're coming to some tense moments here in the Exodus. Exodus narrative in these chapters, and things are really heating up. Yeah, the tension's definitely building. Uh, coming up to the ten plagues, you can feel that there's this conflict that's going to have to get some resolution somehow, and it's definitely a, a powerful story. And I bet I know what's going to happen, but let's go ahead and uh, <laughs> we'll we'll study it together uh, here in the coming weeks and uh, discuss it now. So, Tim, the story of the Egyptian captivity and the exodus of the Israelites it plays such an important part in the development of the New Testament story, and we've talked about that, we've hinted about that here in, in past weeks. But before we get into discussing this particular passage, can we hit on some of those themes that we've seen and, and that we will see and how the New Testament narrative is impacted by those themes? Absolutely. So, you know, we start off with Israel and Egypt, that they are enslaved. And even as we'll see in this passage, you know, every time that Moses is going to Pharaoh demanding let my people go, the bondage just gets more severe and, and the suffering gets more significant for the people. And so I think to start off with, the the condition of the people is slavery. And there's a clear parallel to what we experience spiritually that the Bible makes it clear we are slaves to sin, that we are under sin's penalty, we are subject to sin's power, and, and that as a result, we are hopeless and we are helpless and the thing that's even frightening is that many times we've lived in that bondage so long, we don't know anything different. And so even the Israelites, once they get out of Egypt and into the desert, they're longing to be back in Egypt, even though what they experienced there was slavery. And so I think we have to start off by recognizing that their condition as slaves reflects our conditions as slaves of sin, because the Bible says, whatever it is that we obey that's what we're slaves to, and we don't even realize the severity of our bondage. I think the second thing we see then is God's initiative. We saw back in chapters 3 and 4 that the people cried out, but not to God. They were just crying out in pain. It wasn't like the people were being faith-filled or faithful. They were just suffering. And God, in his great compassion, with his great faithfulness to the promise, He's the one that takes the initiative. And so, you know, we saw in this passage all the, the I wills that God declares. I will do all these things. Seven times, you said. Exactly. So from start to finish, those four promises of salvation are all God's work. And so when we recognize our condition in slavery and that the only hope that we have is God's gracious initiative, it ought to just blow us away. And so then we think about those four promises that he gives of, of liberation, of redemption, of adoption, and protection or provision, even bringing them into the land. And we see so many spiritual applications then to what we ourselves experience, that he brings us out of the slavery that's the only reality we've ever known. He redeems us by paying the sufficient price that, so that we are no longer enslaved. He adopts us so that we now are rightly related to God and can serve him and love him 
know him the way that we're intended to. And then we are protected and provided for with all the spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And so I think that's why kind of the, the general theme for this message series through Exodus is that we are redeemed from sin in order to serve God for his glory. Because that's really the pattern of salvation through the entire scriptures. That's why the Israelites would constantly look back to, we were slaves in Egypt and God redeemed us with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. And even what we see of Jesus accomplishing, it's all within the same pattern of, we were helpless and God took the initiative to rescue and redeem us. And it's certainly, it's allegorical in a sense, but it's much more than an allegory. I mean, this is this is real history. Absolutely. So, yeah, I wouldn't even necessarily use the word allegory, although I understand where you're coming from there, but rather it's anticipatory. Right. That okay. we, we see Good. in part what God will fulfill in, in completeness when Christ comes. And so many things in Scripture are that way, where we get little glimpses in which then Christ shows us that he is the true and better uh, of all those things we had seen in part in the Old Testament. Certainly the true and better Moses. Absolutely. Right, the deliverer, the redeemer. Uh, as you're talking about how this applies to the the New Testament narrative, uh, it reminds me, too, of the fact that you know Moses keeps saying, Lord, I'm not the one for this job. I can't do this. Even today we'll see a phrase twice mm-hmm. in this passage in chapter 6. I have I am of uncircumcised lips. We'll talk about that, mm-hmm. but it reminds me of the fact that no, I can't do it on my own. And boy, I've tried, and I'm guessing you've probably tried at times. Absolutely, but uh, we all try. But God says, no, I know you can't, mm-hmm. and, but I can, and I can use you in yes. whatever I want to do. And many times He puts us in those impossible situations so that we realize we can't do it, Hmm. so that we recognize that the power, the wisdom, the provision are not because we were smart enough to figure something out or powerful enough to accomplish our will, but because God is at work in ways sometimes that we don't even see. And this type of bondage, this is not only into the New Testament narrative, this is into the 2020s narratives. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we see it all the time. So, Tim, you noted as we were focusing in the earlier part of chapter 6, following Moses' expressing his frustrations to God, that you said the most important thing, or something like this, most important thing in God's response is not the details of God's plan, but the identity, character, and nature of God who holds all the circumstances in his hand. God doesn't always let us in on all the where's and why's, does he? but he does reveal the who. Absolutely. <clears throat> and that's such an, a comforting truth as we study this, but it's also a challenging truth when we're the one in the valley, isn't it? No. Like we can sit here from a theological perspective and say, yes, that's so good. He says, I am the Lord. And we don't need to know all the answers. We don't have to understand every nuance of his plan. But when we're the ones in that situation, we sure want to. We sure want him to explain what he's doing and why he's doing it and what the timeline is for for how it's unfolding. But I think even there, there's a depth of dependence that God is calling us to where he says, I'm not going to give you every answer that you might like because what I'm calling you to is faith. And if, if I lay out my entire plan, then it's not faith anymore. And so as Hebrews would say, faith is the evidence of things not seen that many times God calls us to just trust in him and walk with him through that season of suffering or trial. But we want to be 
able to see the big picture, and I'll speak for myself, in part because we want to be convinced that God actually knows what he's doing or that it's going to be worth it or, or that, that he's really fair when it doesn't feel fair. And to a degree, we can actually be kind of putting God on the defense stand, you know, the judgment stand to where we say, all right, God, you're going to have to defend your actions. And that's where I think he just is constantly putting us back in a place of dependence. Because the whole point of the Exodus is not just to redeem his people, but to reveal himself. And so as he reveals himself, whether it's with his justice against Egypt, his love for his people, his power over the gods of Egypt, or even his sovereignty over every detail of the story, what he wants us to know is him. And I can even think back to times in my life where I've gone through hard times. I've come to know God in ways that I never would have if I didn't walk through that valley. It doesn't mean it always felt good in that moment, but that repetition that he has here in chapter six of, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. I think it just reminds us how important theology is for us because our theology shapes how we view God, how we view ourselves, and even how we view our circumstances. And as you say that, I'm, I'm reminded we are here in the latter part of May 2022. And I say that somebody listening down the road might remember that uh, just this past week, we had a tragic circumstance in Uvalde, Texas, where a gunman opens fire, kills, what, 17 students and two teachers in an elementary school in southern Texas. And no doubt the people in Texas, and I, I know people throughout the world, throughout or certainly throughout our country, are saying, God, where are you? Mm-hmm. These children, uh, they are, they're innocent children, uh, the innocent of the most innocent of the innocent. How can God, a loving God, allow that kind of thing? Mm. Yeah, those are really, really hard questions. And I think this is where we have to yield to the fact that there is so much that we don't understand. And we live in a broken, sinful world. And so pain and suffering and sin in many times, and this would certainly be an example of it, are caused by the choices of sinful individuals. That, that this gunman chose violence in, in awful, just terrible ways that are beyond really our comprehension. But you're right. The question then for many people is, why would God allow this? And those are questions we just can't answer. But what I can say based on what I know of the Lord and what we've seen throughout Scripture, that many times God allows things that in the moment are awful. Like there, there's no couching it in, in really nuanced terms. Like they are evil, pure and simple, but that he allows it in a way that accomplishes his ultimate plan. We see that most clearly at the cross. Mm-hmm. You know, as Jesus Christ is crucified and beaten and mocked and, and humiliated, there was nothing good about that. But that God in his great grace and his sovereign wisdom takes even that awful evil and bends it to serve his will. Now, if you're going to ask me, how is God doing that in this terrible situation? (laughs) Uh, I'll humbly say I have no idea. But I trust that someday when we get to heaven and we get even a glimpse of what God's big picture plan is, we will come to the conclusion, God, you are good, you are wise, and you do what is right. And beyond that, I think we have to leave it to to just simply trust in his character. 
and being prepared always to approach those circumstances that will inevitably come in each of our lives. You talk about doctrine. You talk about theology. Mm-hmm. I, I think of myself, I can fall back on knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that God is good, knowing that God is gracious. And that does help me to, under, not, if not understand, at least deal with, okay, God, I do trust you. And uh, con- I don't want to say conditioning ourselves, but it's really conditioning ourselves, uh, uh, disciplining ourselves, disciplining our minds to think right about God so that when the winds come, we're not blown over. Is that a fair? Right. Because, you know, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we experience persecution or suffering or even just brokenness as a result of living in a broken world. That can include, you know, cancer, that can include broken relationships, that can include losses of loved ones. But that as we recognize this world is not our home, there is a hope that goes beyond the horizon of just this world, that because we are are redeemed and we are secure, that God's power is in us and his will is being accomplished through us, that even though there's many things that we don't understand, we just root ourselves in those truths and we walk through those valleys one step at a time. And I would even add, in the context of Christian community, because sometimes when we're left to ourselves, we see Moses struggling with this, we get tunnel vision, right? You know, like, it's it's hopeless, I'm helpless, everything's broken, nothing's going right. And sometimes what we need is somebody else who's been through difficult roads to just remind us, don't forget God's in control. Don't forget he keeps his promises and he's always faithful. Tim, I can't help but uh, remember uh, different times one of my children uh, just sometimes had trouble making right decisions. I won't even, I won't say who it is, but uh, the fact of the matter is I would, I can remember times when I would stand there and I would tell that one, you know, this is what's going to happen because of your, your choices. And when they'd come back and, oh, it made them so angry when I was right. (laughs) But I think it also gave them a certain amount of confidence, Mm -hmm. a certain amount of peace, knowing that, huh, he was right. He must know something that I don't. Mm-hmm. And I, it, that gives me confidence. God telling me, okay, this is what happens when you sin. And when it happens, I say, oh, yeah, God. And it gives me greater confidence in God. Yes. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's so many memorials that are established in Scripture. You know, whether it's as we'll see the, the Israelites setting up stone memorials or, or the Passover memorial or even what we do every other Sunday here at, at Grace as we celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember that in our helplessness, God has rescued us, that in our weakness, he has redeemed us, that in our confusion, he has a plan, because we often suffer from spiritual amnesia. <laughs> and we we struggle, and then God is faithful, and we say, God, you're so good. And then as soon as we start to struggle, we despair again, rather than saying, we've been here before, and we know that God will be faithful. And Moses and the people of Israel, we'll see that here in the coming pages. You got it. So... Uh, Tim, Moses is pleading his lack of ability to fulfill God's plan in chapter 6, there in verse 12 and verse 40. He brings to God the concept, or he, he speaks the concept of uncircumcised lips. Mm-hmm. I had referenced that phrase a little earlier. It's not really a term that we use regularly, <laughs> and when we think of circumcision, we don't think of lips. But is Moses making a reference here to circumcision in terms of God's covenant with the people, or is this something else that he's saying, you think? It's a little bit 
confusing as to what exactly he's saying, but my personal opinion is he's likely referencing back to chapter 4 where God has disciplined him for not circumcising one of his children. And although there's a lot of covenant complexity there, I think basically the point there is you have to have been circumcised to be ready to be used by God. That he's not going to use somebody who's not circumcised in this way because of the covenant promises. Exactly. And so I think when he says, I have uncircumcised lips, he's saying, I'm not yet qualified or capable of being used of you in this way. That he's focused on his ability. And so he's trotting out kind of these same excuses. We saw the excuse back in chapter 4. We're seeing it repeated twice here in chapter 6 that, God, I am not equipped to do what you're calling me to do. And to a degree, he's almost blaming God right. for the fact that he's not going to be effective. It's actually ironic in chapter four. He says, I have never been able to, nor since the time I've started talking to you, have I been able to speak. It's almost like in those last 15 minutes, God, you, Where still, you, been? Haven't, you haven't, still haven't done anything to fix this. <clears throat> but I just, I feel like that represents me, yeah. you know, that we are slow to understand. We're slow to believe. We're slow to obey. So often we trot out the same tired excuses, you know, God, I don't have enough money to give generously. God, I don't know enough to disciple my family. God, I'm, I'm not confident enough or enough of an extrovert to be able to share my faith. And God says, it's not about you. In fact, it's in your weakness that I want you to follow me in faith that you might see my power at work within you, my sufficiency for those circumstances. Good. Great. Great. Well, uh, next comment, next question, perhaps. I, I noticed that we didn't spend any time or much time, anyway, I didn't catch it, on that second half of chapter six, dealing with the families of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, uh, genealogies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm assuming this isn't because that genealogies are unimportant. No, that's no. certainly not true. <laughs> in, in full disclosure, I had planned to, to spend just a brief bit of time on the genealogies and as I was going through the sermon, the certain elements <laughs> took longer than I anticipated, which happens to us as preachers sometimes. Yes, it does. And so I said, all right, I'm going to have to kind of just skip over that so that we can get here to the end of our Decision passage. Decision on the run. You got it. Yeah. Um, but I'm, one of the reasons I'm thankful for these types of opportunities to be able to unpack what we don't have time to unpack on a Sunday morning. But certainly we see throughout Scripture the genealogies are incredibly important for a variety of reasons. One, I mean... Moses and Aaron are walking out of the desert and into Egypt as unknown entities, you know, we would assume, especially Moses. Or at least yesterday's news. Right. You know, to where it's, who are you to tell us that God is going to be faithful to his promises to Abraham? And so I think there's a couple of things God's doing here. One, it's specifically Aaron's genealogy. And so it's validating that these two men, but Aaron specifically, are connected to the covenant promises. They're traced all the way back to Abraham. And so when they're declaring God's message, these are God's people who are affirming God's promises. I think it's also affirming for the reader of Exodus that Aaron is of the Levitical line. That is, he is going to be the priest who is intervening here that ultimately points us ahead to Christ as our our great high priest. You know, from a, a biblical scholar perspective or a student of the scriptures, It also affirms, as we look at these generations, the Bible tells us that Israel was down in Egypt for 430 years. And it's very reasonable, as we look at all these generations that intervene, I believe it's 10 generations, that that's a very reasonable thing to think that 10 generations over 430 years fits the picture that God has given us of Israel down in Egypt. And so all of those kind of come together to to demonstrate for us that 
God's promises are connected from Abraham all the way to Moses and Aaron and then looking forward even to Christ. Great, great. Well, when I hear these three names, I don't think of, of roses and, uh, and <laughs> perfume. Okay, I, I want to read something to you. Uh-huh. Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is <clears throat> blessing his sons. Uh, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength and first roots of my virility, excelling in prominence, excelling in power, turbulent as water or unstable as water, another version uh, says. You will not excel because you got into your father's bed. You defiled it. He got into my bed. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their knives are vicious weapons. May I ever or may I never enter their council. May I never join their assembly. For in their anger they kill men, and on a whim they hamstring oxen. Their anger is cursed, for it's strong, and their fury, for it is f- cruel. I will disperse them throughout Jacob and scatter them throughout Israel. We often think of families that are identified with and defined by their their leader, mm-hmm. their patriarch. But here in Exodus chapter six, or yes, Exodus chapter six, God is saying, "What?" Saying every family has issues, <laughs> and that thankfully God uses us anyway. I, I think we see that you know certainly what you just read in, in Genesis forty nine. Even when we look at the people that are named here in Exodus chapter six, you know the the descendants of Aaron or the relatives of Aaron. You know, it mentions Phineas, and if mm-hmm. you look ahead in the, the story, Phineas is one who, when the Israelites were being immoral with the Moabites, I believe it was, um, you know, he actually starts running people through with a spear to to preserve purity in the camp. And so you say, man, that that's the type of person that you want to be. But then you also have Korah, who leads a rebellion against Moses. You have Nadab and Abihu, who are offering strange fire in the tabernacle, and they're struck down dead. And so whenever we look at the genealogies, even the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew and in Luke, it's a sordid history of people in many times that were faithless and sinful. But I think that makes God's redemption that much more Mm -hmm. remarkable, that he chooses to use us in our weakness and even in our sinfulness to demonstrate his great grace. So what you're saying here is that there is still hope for the Cockrell family. I sure hope so. (laughs) Well, okay, so in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, we have this statement by the Lord to Moses. He says, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. I have made you like God. That's weird. Mm hmm. Does sound a little odd to us, but I think the, the main point here is Pharaoh imagined himself to be the incarnation of the God, the the divine and supreme leader of the land. You called him the usurper. Exactly. You know, to where he is taking God's place, desiring God's glory, and even taking God's people and ascribing their service to himself. And so God, as he sends Moses, he's saying, Moses, I'm sending you as my representative, which means your words will be my words, that my power will be channeled through you that you might do my work. And so he is sending Moses with his message and with his power to declare to Pharaoh, no, you are not God, but rather Yahweh is God. He is the one who Mm -hmm. reigns supreme. And so as a result, he's dependent on God's enablement and he is proclaiming God's message. And here's where I think that applies then to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it says that we are God's ambassadors of reconciliation, as if God himself were making his appeal through us. 
And so in a very real sense, we are the hands and feet of Christ. We are the the modern-day prophets of God declaring his message, calling people to repent, and warning them of judgment, not because we ourselves are God, but because we are his messengers. And so to that extent, we carry God's authority because we are proclaiming his message. And that's where I think we have to just be reminded of what we mentioned yesterday, uh, or I'm sorry, on Sunday as we were preaching, is that the, the responsibility that we have is not to be successful, but to be faithful. You know, that we proclaim the message and we trust that God's authority and God's power are going to do God's work. And all we have to do is be faithful, not persuasive, not overly educated, uh, and not uh, overly intelligent, but just simply the messengers of the message. Hmm. Knowing who we are in God's plan. Well, uh, Tim, we're, we're moving into, we've moved into chapter 7, and here as we get into next week, uh, that confrontation between Yahweh and Jehovah, we read the Lord, the true God and Pharaoh, the wannabe, the usurper, mm-hmm. as you call him, is set to begin. And give us a little run-up into next week's study. Man, it's such a, a beautiful passage, so much going on there. I'm still trying to figure out how we're going to cover it all in one message, <laughs> but maybe we can give a preview here. I think one of the key things for us to understand is that the plagues are specifically targeted against the different things that the Egyptians worshipped, the different gods and goddesses that they uh, felt had power or things that they were prone to love, trust, and obey. And God is going to systematically expose the powerlessness of those things and his supremacy. And so as I look at that, I'm reminded of how often our hearts are prone to love, trust, and obey something other than God. And that God in his grace actually exercises judgment over those substitute saviors, if you will, so that we will depend on him. So even in his judgment, there is grace that he is before the final judgment, exposing the weakness of our idols, the deceptiveness of our idols, and the supremacy of his power. I also think we see that there's a missionary purpose to the plagues. That God over and over again, especially in chapter 9, will say, I'm doing these things so that they may know I am the Lord. And it's fascinating that when the Israelites actually come out of Egypt, it says some of the Egyptians go with them. Some of them. Some of that. Some of them begin to fear the Lord, and even once the Israelites arrive in the promised land, different people say, we have heard about what the Lord did there in Egypt, and we are terrified. And and so we see the the weakness of the idols, the faithfulness of God, and then the third thing I would say is we see the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And man, it's so easy for us to judge Pharaoh here, like, what a fool, He sees all the the work of God, all the promises of God, all the warnings of coming judgment, and yet he still just gives these superficial expressions of repentance, these stubborn expressions of rebellion. And then I look at my own heart and say, that looks eerily familiar (laughs) as I look at the reflection of Pharaoh in my own heart. And I think that's one of those warnings that we have to have that our heart is deceptive and it is hard apart from the work of Christ. And there's a mystery that's here as we study this passage that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And we'll talk a little bit about that on Sunday. But I think another mystery alongside of that is that God redeems Israel in spite of their faithlessness. 
It's not like they're sitting over there having their their synagogue <laughs> services every Saturday and saying, God, we're trusting in you. No, they're faithless. They're complaining. They're struggling. But God in his grace is going to rescue and redeem them while he judges Israel and, and Pharaoh. And although there's much... Judges that we, Egypt and Yes, Pharaoh. I'm sorry, Egypt and, and Pharaoh. And while there's much that we don't understand about that, we ultimately rest in the fact that God in his sovereign purposes is going to express salvation and judgment in the way that he has seen fit. Hmm. Well, Tim, uh, we're going to be in chapter 17, about the middle through what chapter? We're going to go go chapter 7 through at least chapter 10. We might, uh, chapter 11 is kind of the preview of Passover, so it's a bit of a hinge passage. We'll see how far we can get. Okay, very good, very good. Well, Tim Cockrell has been my guest for this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace, and we've been discussing his recent sermon from Exodus chapters 5 through 7. You can access that message on demand through YouTube, and you can also access each podcast episode by using your favorite podcast app or by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next week. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's Word as we continue our study beginning in the second half of Exodus chapter 7. Until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.